Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of my favorite stories of the week came from the Wall Street Journal. There's this effort to make hipsters the new hunters. The number of Americans that are 16 years or older who hunt has dropped about 18% from two decades ago. And this older generation of hunters is pitching the sport as a way to make sure that the meat that you're getting is local and sustainable. They're targeting hipsters with slogans like, harvest your own local meat, and hunters are the original conservationists. We spoke to Zusha Ellenson. He's a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. And we start off by talking about how exactly these organizations are trying to find new hunters. I mean, let me set the scene for you here. So say you go to a farmer's market, right? This is where people who are concerned about their produce, where it's coming, they want it to be organic, they want it to be fresh. And this is where this organization that's trying to draw new hunters sets up shop. This is where they're trying to find new hunters. So they have a little booth. They're handing out samples of venison. And when someone comes to try and taste it, they're like, yum, that tastes pretty good. They say, guess what? This is the most locally sourced, sustainably sourced, and as you said, probably organically sourced meat you can probably get. And when the person asks, oh, how's that? They say, well, this is white-tailed deer. And then if the person is still interested, which actually happens, they sign them up with a mentor who teaches them to hunt, and then they actually go out hunting. And a lot of these people, this includes former vegetarians, this includes farmers market managers, this includes grad students, your foodies, your hipsters, they actually really get into hunting. It is a great way to experience the process. Most of Americans just go to the store and buy it, or as you said, they'll go to their farmer's market and buy stuff, just kind of expecting it to have been all done humanely and whatnot. But this is a, a process that you can go through to gain really new appreciation for the animal and the whole process. And you get your hands a little dirty. You know, you, you're involved in part of it. So it is kind of an interesting way to market towards these people. And as you said, they set up shops in these farmers market and they got great slogans. Harvest your own local meat. Hunters are the original conservationists. And it hooks people. It absolutely does. It is really interesting. I think it's like the meeting of two worlds in some way, right? You got these old crusty hunters who are, you know, likely Republicans. And then you got these young hipsters coming in who are likely Democrats. It's a nice meeting of the minds. But there is actually a lot of overlap. I mean, I think what some people don't understand is that hunters are committed to conservation. So there's a number of ways that's true. I mean, every time they buy a hunting license that goes to pay for conservation. But number two, anyone who spends that much time out in the wild really has a love for the outdoors and really has a love for the environment. And I think that's what these people start to see when they go out with their mentors and so forth. So it's a nice like cross-cultural thing as well. What's interesting is the problem that they're trying to combat here. We'll get into that in a little bit, but let me just tell you a little about that. I mean, what's happening is that now you have a younger generation, right? And they are growing up more and more in cities and suburbs. Right. And they're gr growing up more and more glued to their phones and they don't um, want to go out and hunt. And that's the real crisis that they're facing here. And we talked to one kid whose father tried for years to get him to go out hunting. And when 
and his dad would come in on Friday, right? He'd say, you, you guys want to come out hunting with me? And his teenage sons would ask, they'd say, what time? And he'd say, 5 a.m. And <laughs> right. they'd be like, oh, dad, that's so early. And then they'd ask him, are we going to catch anything? And he'd say, no, no, it's called hunting for a reason. And when I talked to the, his son, he, said, he told me, he said, I just don't have the patience for that. And he said, it's sort of symbolic of his generation, right? Where you could log on to Instagram, post something, you get a bunch of likes, sort of this instant gratification generation. And the idea of waiting in the woods for six hours to possibly maybe catch a deer didn't really appeal to him. Yeah, I mean, that's an important point because for a lot of the older hunters, it was kind of a lifestyle. You'd go out on the weekends and do this and then you'd cut up the meat and you'd have that meat. You know, you'd, you have to make sure to buy that big ice chest freezer, but you'd have that meat for a long time. And that was your dinner for a while. And growing up in cities and, you know, people don't have the time for it. As you said, the patience for it is a different thing. It's tough for people and kids to get into this kind of lifestyle. One of the organizations you mentioned in here is called Field to Fork. So they're organizing people to go out on these hunts and, and get the meat and they train you and everything. They use crossbows. They don't use guns, which is a good idea. I think it. Uh, you mentioned it also it is a lot more palatable to people that maybe don't mm -hmm. want to handle a gun. And uh, crossbows are kind of cool. Absolutely. So my colleague, uh, he went out with the field to fork hunters down in Georgia. And yeah, what they do is like we were saying before, they recruit at the farmer's market and then they plan these hunts and they go out and they go out with crossbows, like you said, because, you know, some people coming to hunting for the first time, say you're a locavore, you're a foodie, they're not quite comfortable with the gun right away. Yeah. So this is an easy way into it. It also allows them to go hunting nearer to civilization. You know, when you're shooting with the crossbow, it's completely quiet and they can go nearer to the city to hunt, which they like. It also, I think, gets them up close with the with the prey, and it's a more visceral experience as well, which was interesting in talking to some of these first-time hunters. They really like that visceral experience of hunting and killing something and providing for themselves. I mean, these are people who catch the deer and then they use the meat for the rest of the year like people used to back in the right. day. It's pretty interesting. I think this is a really great idea. I would love to do something like this. Uh, as I said, I, I think you do gain appreciation for the animal and the whole process and then the food, you know, it's going to be in your head, but it's going to taste better just because you went out and did it. But in this expedition that, that you talked about in, in the piece, what happened at the end? There was no deer that was killed. That's right. So they proved the young millennials who right. like video games right in that they had to wait all day, several hours up in their hunting stands, and then they did not catch a deer. But as many hunters know, that is definitely part of hunting. There's yeah. many days where you don't catch a deer. But they all did go back up to the shed there, the, the shop there, and they ate some venison tacos prepared by... By the field to fork guy. He, he was the same guy that cooked up the samples of venison that drew them in the first place. So yeah. they're, they're pretty pleased by that. Zusha Ellenson, national reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Oscar. Real pleasure. One of the more interesting stories of the week was news of a controversial startup called Ambrosia that charges $8,000 to fill old people up with the blood of younger people as a way to combat aging, they do accept PayPal for the procedure. This was started off by Dr. Jesse Karmazin. He is a graduate of Stanford Medical School, and he started this company and set it up in five U.S. cities so far. They recently completed some clinical trials designed to assess the benefits of the procedure, but they haven't published any results yet. We spoke to Erin Broadwin. She's a science and tech reporter with Business Insider. And we talked about how the procedure works, these clinical trials, 
and the murky science of what this treatment is. I've been writing about this company. It's a startup for a couple of years now, and they are essentially offering infusions of young blood plasma from donors between the ages of, I think it's 16 to 25. And if you're 30 or over, you can go and allegedly you can go and get an injection of this young blood, which is supposedly supposed to revitalize you, do everything from make you smarter to make you more youthful appearing and generally revitalize. But huge caveat, there has not been any conclusive scientific study done to prove any of these claims. Yeah, the science is a little murky on this, although they have done clinical trials and they haven't released any of that data yet. But the founder, his name is Jesse Carmazin, has said that he's very excited about it, that it's it's promising. You got a chance to speak to him about this whole project. I've spoken to him a few times. He's certainly enthusiastic. He graduated from Stanford with a medical degree, but he is not licensed to practice medicine. He's not a physician or a doctor, but he is very enthusiastic. And yes, they did one clinical trial, which is registered on clinicaltrials.gov. However, if you visit the website, go to check it out, there's nothing there. The results have not been published. I asked Jesse about some of the findings and he told me that they were positive, but again, nothing exists to, to verify those claims. So that being said, they have five clinics across the US, LA, San Francisco, Tampa, Omaha, and Houston, where you can go get this procedure done. For uh, one liter of younger blood is 8,000, two liters is $12,000. How can they do this without publishing any findings or anything like that? It's allegedly up and running in five cities. At least that's what he told me. And that's what's listed on their website, ambrosiaplasma.com, I think it is. But the reason that they're able to do this, although there haven't been any publicized benefits of effectiveness, is because the Food and Drug Administration, FDA, has basically approved just blood transfusions in general. Usually they're used for emergency issues or more practice things that most people are familiar with. Mm -hmm. But in this case, it's essentially what's called like an off-label treatment. So let's talk about that clinical trial that they did have. They infused about 150 people ages 35 to 92. Okay, if you're older, yes, but if you're 35, do you really need the blood of a 25-year-old? That's that's cutting it pretty close. How did yeah. that go? What ha- I mean, I, I know that the details are slim, but what have they said and what have these people that participated in this trial, what did they say they felt? Any changes? The people who can get one of these procedures, allegedly, you only have to be 30 or over to participate. I'm glad that you brought up the 150 people because in actuality, the 150 people figure is just the amount of people that they claim to have infused, but only 81 participated in the clinical trial. Still, that's a a pretty good number. But unfortunately, if you check out that clinical trial online, there are no results listed. You can't tell what the findings were. And I asked Jesse for details on some of the participants, if I could get in touch with them. And he declined to offer me that information. So we don't know what the participants experienced. They said, up their website. They got uh, about 100 inquiries within that first week. So there are people that are interested in this kind of thing. My mind immediately jumps into a Black Mirror situation where in the near future, (laughs) people are getting the blood of younger people, kind of like you would get your vitamins and liquids uh, to cure a hangover or something. You know, that's the first thing I start thinking of. Uh, They've done other kinds of trials similar to this. And They've concluded that it, they provided some limited cognitive improvements. What do we know about that? Because as I said, uh, 
not many people have really looked into the science of this, if transfusing blood actually improves uh, the body of another person. There has been some other research on the idea of doing what's called parabiosis or linking up two living organisms, in exchange, one being younger and one being older, to exchange the young blood, to swap the older blood for the younger blood. But most of those experiments have been in mice, and mice are very, very different from humans. In fact, a lot of the reasons we don't have any groundbreaking Alzheimer's drugs is because a lot of the initial candidates showed all these promising results in mice, and then they tried to do it in people, and nothing happened. So it's important to keep that in mind, but when they did do it in mice, and again, this is a different group of researchers, Jesse was not involved in any of this, they did note some very limited cognitive benefits. It's an interesting idea. It's an interesting possible business. There's over 14 million transfusions that happen every year. So it's something that's been going on for a while. So it's relatively safe. But I noticed in one of your pieces, you wrote that working with blood plasma is a pretty serious challenge. A lot of times you need to get the right mixture of this stuff for a single recipient. You need it to get as many as the plasma from 10 donors. So where are they getting all this blood from? There's a lot of companies that do bank blood plasma, and plasma being the liquid part of the blood in which your red blood cells are suspended. That's the component of the blood that most of the research is being done in. And they do bank that. Again, it's mostly reserved for emergency reasons, things where people might actually need this stuff to survive. I believe I also asked Carmazin where they were getting the blood, and he deferred. But there are other companies that are studying plasma, doing actual quite legitimate research to try to find potential drug candidates for age-related diseases, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, things, some of them. Aaron Broadwin, science and tech reporter for Business Insider. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks again for having me. Just for a few little afterthoughts on this, I want to bring my producer Miranda in. Thank you, Miranda. Hey, Oscar. Would you be down for something like this procedure that we were just talking about? The only thing turning me off is the cost of it. I don't have a spare eight grand lying around for one liter of (laughs) blood. But in general, yeah, I'm interested in this. People probably thought Botox was crazy when it first came out. And now it's like regular and there's even medical benefits. I know women get what's called a vampire facial where they drain your own blood and then inject it back into your face. And I've seen the results on people and they look incredible. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. YouTube has taken a page out of the Tinder handbook and is now letting you swipe through videos on its mobile app so you can endlessly watch videos. The thought process is that it's easier to swipe than it is to tap on the screen. And they hope that you stay on there much longer. We spoke to Eleanor Cummins. She's an assistant editor at Popular Science. And she joined us to talk about this project that's been two years in the making, which the employees internally called Swipey Watch. We start off by talking about why this will work and how 70% of users are watching YouTube right now. About 70% of YouTube's users, and I think this is incredible, come through their mobile app. So a lot of people are on their phone having to point around on this really small screen and tap through videos. What they decided would be easier is to do this kind of gestural swiping. And so they've implemented that, and it's going to be a slow rollout. It started on Monday, and it should be reaching everyone over the next few weeks. And the idea is that you can swipe left to see the video you were just watching on your phone, or you can swipe right to see the next video that's recommended in your YouTube queue. Mobile viewing is really changing how a lot of websites are doing everything. People use their phones for so much. There's times when I'm doing research at home on my laptop, but 
let's say I need to reference a quick video or something, I'll pull my phone out just to look at that quick YouTube so I don't have to like change the layout of what I'm doing on my laptop. So 70% of uh, all this viewership on mobile seems about right. It's funny because they're changing. Usually you'd have to, you know, click exactly the link that you want or click back or something like that, just kind of tapping. And there's research that suggests that all of this swiping is just a lot easier and people tend to just gravitate towards it more naturally. Right. When I was talking with the YouTube design team, you know, they really emphasized how they're just trying to make the platform easier. And you know what that translates to, right, is people spending more time on the oh, site. Yeah. If it's harder to leave than it is to stay, you're suddenly getting, you know, way more time on these YouTube videos. So with this kind of gestural experience of swiping instead of tapping, it seems that it's a lot energetically easier for the user, which I think kind of makes sense. Like if you're thinking about when you have to tap and you have to hit this very narrow part of your phone screen, right? It's really prescribed. You go back and forth sometimes like you're trying to figure out, does it want, you know, like the pad of my finger? What's going to get this task done? You swiping. click the wrong thing and it takes you the video you don't want right. to watch. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just a mess. Whereas with swiping, it's engaging a larger part of the screen, which I think is really intuitive, right? Like you're just aiming for like the left or the right side and it's going to register that really broad stroke. And so they have found, you know, that this is something that in research people really like and they think that it's going to be able to drive more time on YouTube. They said that this was about two years in the making. So this is something they've been planning for a long time now. The concern here, right, is that because so many people are coming to their content via the app, that it needs to be a really smooth rollout and they need to be really confident that it's going to work. So they started throwing this idea around more than two years ago, according to the design team, and they really started to take action within the last two years. So it's a really complicated and iterative process, right? Like you're constantly undoing the work you've done. So they had all of these different concepts or how they wanted it to go, but then you know, some of them were just absolutely terrible in prototypes. So you go back to the drawing board and then eventually they were able to take a few really solid concepts to beta testers and they were able to move forward on the swipe that you are going to be seeing on your phone soon. Employees had a funny name for this internally. They called it Swipey Watch. <laughs> I thought that yes, was kind of funny. Yes, that was their little nickname for it. <laughs> they had some other stuff that they've been rolling out to in recent years. Uh, the other one is called Flexi Watch, which would just, uh, you know, it was a different aspect ratios on how it would fit on your screens and whatnot. But it's kind of funny, the little names that they, that they have for these. Yeah, they obviously are having such a great time with all of this. Yeah, they have these funny nicknames for it. And then, you know, they were also talking about how with UX design, you obviously want to talk to your users and you want to make sure that it's working for them. And in the case of YouTube, like part of their usership are the people who are creating content. So the video makers. So, you know, they were also talking about how while they couldn't name the specific YouTubers, they had a great time talking with some of their favorite celebrities about whether or not these new designs work for them. The reason why this change from YouTube is so interesting to me is because companies always have to adapt to the way users are using the products now and they're making right. it easier for you to stay there. So they're playing a little bit of psychology. They have to tweak it to stay fun and new and innovative. Everybody uses YouTube for you know mundane things, for research, for all sorts of stuff. A lot of times people are resistant to change. I think about when Instagram updated their uh, settings and <laughs> brought that horizontal scrolling, You know, it was a mistake, but they were going to be testing it. And a lot of people said that it's on the horizon, so you got to get ready for it, basically. 
but people are so resistant to some changes sometimes. And that's why this thing is so interesting to me. Definitely. Yeah, we've reported a bit on the situation at Instagram, because as I wrote in an article, that used to be such like a serene space on the internet, right, where you could go for just some really nice photos from your friends. And in the last like year and a half or two years, it's just become this like insane fun house where there are like new features every day. And there's a lot of good research backing up their decisions, even though people really hate it, the usership is rising. So it's this really strange conflict where we say things and then UX designers are able to show we do something else entirely. A lot of it is we're going to make the changes and then just get used to it. And later on down the road, you you kind of end up loving it. So I'm sure YouTube is going to have a lot of success with this new change. Eleanor Cummins, assistant editor at Popular Science. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. All right, that's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles. This was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.